2 Samuel chapter 24 is where we are this morning. And we conclude 2 Samuel today. Mm-hmm. It's been um, over two years that we've been going through First and Second Samuel. I've enjoyed it tremendously. I pray you have. Title of the message today is The Way Back. The Way Back. And, and you know, by way of introduction to the text today, I do so sharing a news story out of uh, recent news events. Maybe you're familiar with the story. In July 2013, there was a, a gal from Brentwood, Tennessee. Her name was Geraldine Largay. And she decided that she was going to set out to fulfill one of the items on her bucket list. And uh, what she wanted to do was hike the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine. And so she and a friend committed to do this thing, and they, and they started off uh, on this, this hike. And um, shortly into their trip, the friend had a family emergency, and she had to go home. And so now uh, Geraldine was by herself on this trek. And uh, sh- shortly thereafter, she got sidetracked. Uh, she, she strayed from the trail, she just got off track, and she got hopelessly lost. And so f- that started just a frantic thing over the next 28 days where she was trying t- desperately to contact her family. And she sent m- multiple texts, but because of the remote nature of where she was, none of the texts were actually sent. They never, none of them went through. Um, and she resorted to keeping a journal a daily journal where she was writing to her family, to her friends, to her loved ones. And um, last month, the authorities found that journal and tragically, uh, they found it with Geraldine's remains. She died in the wilderness. And one of the truly tragic aspects of this story is that they found her body less than a mile off of the trail. It's, it's a sad story and it serves as a metaphor uh, today of the experience that some Christians have where they start off on an exciting journey of faith with God and promise and, and all and then what happens is they drift off the path and they become hopelessly lost and before you know it, like Geraldine, they find themselves desperate to find their way back. Maybe that describes some of you here today. Maybe you're off the path and you're desperate to come back to the Lord. This is where we find David this morning. He's drifted off the path and he is desperate to come back. If you were with us last week, you know David got it in his heart to take a census of all of his troops. And it, and it reveals just a departure that his heart has taken off the path that he's walked with God for so many years. David walking a walk of faith with God and David's legacy that he has to leave us isn't the legacy that this detour was threatening to derail. 
And the detour was threatening to derail the legacy of faith and God providing and God doing wonderful, awesome things in David's life. I mean, we see him, you know, conquering Goliath, this giant. We see him fighting a lion and a bear. We see him uh, enduring the attacks of Saul and enduring and conquering the attacks of the Philistines. And he didn't do any of that in his own strength or in his own ability or in his own self-reliance. He did that by the strength of God and simply trusting in God by faith. But now here in his old age, he's about 70 years old here in this account. And basically he's gotten to the place to where now he's trying to trust in the flesh. Now he's taking this walk of, of being, you know, self-sufficient, and this is where David is at. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10, we continue, and it says, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I explained that phrase very foolishly to you last week. The best way to do it is a visual. If you've ever seen the cheesy karate movie where the guy, you know, goes in, you know, hits the guy in the chest and takes his beating heart out of his chest and holds it there in front of him and the guy watches this be- his own beating heart and falls over dead. This is actually a really good description of what happens with David when he says, I've done very foolishly. It is God reaching into his chest and exposing the folly of his sin. And this is the way sin is for us. That what happens is sin seems very appealing and we yield to the temptation and immediately after we yield to the the temptation, what we find is that the sin is pleasurable for a moment, but it comes with incredible remorse and guilt and shame and so on. And this is what David has going on here. It says that his heart condemned him. That's a high fill verb. It means literally to strike or to wound. If you wanted to circle that word condemned and write to strike or to wound, that would be the perfect translation. And, and, and this hyphil verb stem means that this is this work that, that, that God is, is, is doing in his heart. And, and so, you know, and the idea here, it says his heart condemned him. And we have to understand that God doesn't condemn. God convicts us of our sin. Jesus promised that when he went, uh, ascended into heaven and, and was talking to his disciples, he, he told them, I'm gonna give you my Holy Spirit. And he said that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit was to convict the world of sin. So it's a good thing when you sin, and sin is not a good thing, but it's good that when you sin, you experience conviction because that tells you that you've got a spiritual pulse tells you that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in your life to convict you of sin. So what happens here when David says that his heart, when it says that David's heart condemned him, yeah, the enemy would like to condemn when we fall into sin. The enemy would like to heap on and bring condemnation and shame and say, oh, you, you know, you suck. You ought to just forget it. You ought to just give up because that's what he wants you to do is to give up. You know, but what, what this is really more accurately describing, yes, his heart condemned him, but it's really, there's really more, it's a, it's a heart of conviction that's going on. That David is convicted of his sin, and so there's, there's this response to it. 
And so again, when we're convicted of our sin, thank you, God, that I experienced conviction, that tells me that the Holy Spirit's alive and well and working in my life. Because it's not always that way. Speaking to Timothy, the apostle Paul wrote, now the Spirit expressly says that in in later times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, And here's what I want you to see, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, there are those that are going to stray from the faith that get, that, that go so far that they go beyond the point of conviction. And now there's no longer that conviction of sin that takes place. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 20 tells us about the adulterous woman. It says, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wickedness. I've done nothing wrong, just totally far from that way, that heart of conviction. Now, thankfully, this isn't David's heart. David is convicted. And, and so what I want you to take note of here, and this is, this is the first point, and you can write it down, is that David does something with that conviction. David surrendered to God. David surrendered to God. If you, if you find yourself off the path, the way back, first of all, is that you need to surrender. And, and so David surrenders to God. He prays and he says, take away my iniquity. Now, it's one thing to be convicted of sin. Like I said, if, if, if you sin, you're going to have guilt and regret and shame, hopefully. Hopefully your heart isn't seared as with a hot iron. It's one thing to have that conviction, but if you don't respond to that conviction, then it does you no good. It's not going to do you any good. It's not going to get you anywhere. 1 John 1.9, we reference this often. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've been here for any length of time, you understand and know and have heard that that word confess means to agree with God. And the idea is that you agree with God, first of all, about your sin. You call sin what God calls sin. In other words, you don't make excuses for it. You don't say, oh, well, he made me mad. Or you don't say, oh, well, you know, this is just who I am. Or, hey, you get me, you get all of me. You know, this is just, this is just how it goes. You know, no, you don't make excuses for your sin. You don't say, oh, you know what? I, it's, I, I've got an illness. I'm seeing a doctor and, I, and, I, and all, but I'm just, this is just my illness. You know, I'm, I always like to use, I'm genetically predisposed to alcohol. Okay, it's a scientific fact. I, I've got that gene in my family, okay? So there are those that struggle with alcohol and become alcoholics because they're genetically predisposed to it. Fine. You can say it's a medical illness, but it's also sin, and we need to call sin what God calls sin. We don't need to give it some label. We don't need to give it some, you know, and, and all of these are ways to excuse. So we need to confess, the other thing we need to understand about confession is, is it's just that. It's, it's agreeing with God to say, you know what, God, what I've done is wrong in your eyes. And I agree with that. And it's predicated on one very critical word. If we can look at 1 John 1, 9, there's one very critical word. And I'll give you a clue. It's in the very beginning. What's the word? If. If. That's a conditional clause. Okay. If we confess our sin, not if we feel convicted of our sin, not if I've got a guilty conscience, but no, if I confess it, 
And so the, the conditional clause is this, that God's forgiveness is readily available to you. It's readily available to me. That path of going back to God, it is right there for the taking, but it's only through confession that we appropriate and, and, and take for us that way of forgiveness, that way of, 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 of reconciliation. If we confess our sin. So it doesn't come with excuses. It doesn't come with the, oh, I feel bad. It comes with the actual confession. In 1999, Time Magazine published an article. It was titled, The 100 Most Influential Men of the 20th Century. And one of the men that they listed was a guy by the name of Bill Wilson. Bill was an alcoholic. And, and he spent his life in and out of the hospital. And he was, according to his testimony, he was in the hospital for the fourth time. And the doctors in this particular time he was in, they told him, Bill, you're going to kill yourself. You, you are, you're very sick. And if you continue drinking, it's only a matter of time before you're dead. And so there he is, and they're trying to you know, bring him back to this place of, of recovery. He's very addicted to alcohol. He's got a friend of his that shows up, and his friend, to his amazement, is sober, and he knew this guy to be a worse drunk than he was. His friend's sober, and his friend goes on to tell him how he got sober. And basically, he tells him he got sober because he gave his life to Jesus Christ, and, and, and Jesus just saved him. Well, Bill's desperate, and so by his own words, he, he, he goes, he's laying in this hospital bed, he's dis- depressed, he's despairing, and here's what he said. He cried out, quote, I'll do anything, anything at all, if there be a God, let him show himself. Well, Bill was saved. Jesus met him there, he got saved, and Bill would go on to form Alcoholics Anonymous, from this experience. Now, a foundational part of Alcoholics Anonymous is 12 steps. I'll share three of them with you here this morning. The first step, Bill said, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and, uh, and our lives had become unmanageable. Second step, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And the third step was, we made a decision to turn our lives and our will over to the care of God. Now, these are the first three of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and millions of people have been delivered from alcohol addiction following this. Now, the steps go on from there, but here's what I want you to hear. They're really founded on two things, okay? They're founded on confession coupled with action. That's what the 12 steps are founded on. Confession coupled with action. Repentance in your life is exactly the same. Repentance means to turn. It means you're going in one direction and you turn and you go in a different direction. Confession and action. And so this is what is happening here. It's foundational to our Christianity. Confession and action. Second point, if you're taking notes, not only did David surrender to God, but this path back also included that David submitted to God. 
David submitted to God. We pick it up in verse 11. It says, now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying. Now we're gonna go on and read this, but I just wanna throw out there, take note. Hey, David confessed his sin and immediately God responds and begins speaking to him. Maybe you've been in the place where you've sinned against God and all of a sudden, it's like your prayers don't go anywhere. It's like, you know, you're praying and it's like they hit the ceiling and bounce off and you're like, where are you, God? Hey, but listen, when there is confession, when there's a crying out, when there's a, like Bill, hey, if there be a God, let him show himself. I'm yielded here. God, have mercy on me. Now God's word begins to come. Now God begins to speak. He begins to direct. And so God speaks through Gad, David's seer, the, the, the prophet, the, 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 the conduit in the Old Testament times through which God is going to speak. And so here God's word comes to David. Verse 12, go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourselves that I may do it for yourself, that I may do it to you. And so Gad came to David and he told him, and he said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Now, by the way, some of your translations read three years. That comes from the Septuagint, and, and the Septuagint, Septuagint is, is, is really a translation of the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it says seven years. So uh, what, what can I tell you? If, you're, if, you're, if your translation that you have comes from the Septuagint, um, it's really seven years. It's not three years. It's just a, a transcribist error. That doesn't happen often, but, it, but there it is. So in the Hebrew language in which this originally is, is, is written, it's seven years. So, you know, God says to him, all right, look, God gives you a pick. Choose one of the three. Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you three, flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. In verse 14, notice David's response. And David said to God, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men. Now, what you need to understand here, this is David submitting to God because his sin was a deliberate act. We saw last week that he continued 10 months and sometime after that, you know, having given the direction to his generals, go out and number the people and they protesting, going, hey, this is a sinful thing. You don't want to do this, David. But he's like, no, that's what I want you to do. And his heart remained hardened and steadfast in a committed act of the will for an extended period of time. So God goes, oh, you like to independently, you know, exert your, your will. And you, you want to be able to, to be here in this place where you, you decide and make a willful choice. All right, you're repentant. You're saying, God, forgive me, take away my sin. I'm going to give you a, an opportunity to make another willful choice. You get to pick between seven years of famine or the sword of the enemy or the sword of the Lord. So there's, there's another pick for you, David. What are you going to choose? Now, David's choice here is key. Super important. 
Because if he chooses one of the first two options, then he's going to avoid cost personally. Think about it. If it's famine, David's a king. He's rich. He can buy from other lands, from other neighboring nations, food. He, he can take care of making sure that he and his, and his family and all are fed. So, so he's going to avoid any personal consequence if he chooses that option. Or if he chooses the option of, hey, it's going to be war and the enemy's going to come against you. Remember, not too many chapters before, David had already been insulated from war. His guys told him, look, you're too old. You stay back. All of us are going to go into battle. You're going to stay home and you're going to be king where it's safe. So if they go into war, into battle, David's insulated from that as well. He's protected. So if he chooses either of those two options, then, then he covers his own tail. But... If he chooses the third option, if he chooses plague, well, he's putting himself at the mercy of God. And this is the heart of the matter here for this whole account of what's going on. Because the first two options David has control over, and that's what got him into this place, in the, into this position in the first place. David was saying, oh, you know what? I want to be large and in charge. How many, how many forces do I have? That's where all the trouble started. So David says, look, I don't want to fall into, into the hands of man, let me fall into the hands of God. For us, man, so often it can, it can be like that to where we say it's all about God, but really it's all about us. It's about what I can control. It's about me avoiding any sort of personal accountability or cost as it pertains to worship with God. <clears throat> so we continue verse 15. It says, so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And you might want to circle that and just nearby write, sin is very costly. 70,000 people. <clears throat> Verse 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction. And he said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, and now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Now, <clears throat> it says there that the Lord relented from the destruction. Some of your translations say the Lord repented and what that is, is it's called an anthropomorphism. That's where we describe God in using human terms. And, and so, you know, here, what we need to understand is that, that God isn't repenting here as man would repent. And even the word relent kind of suggests, suggests like, you know, so often with our kids, you know, they, they do something and, and you know, I, I, I'm going to kill you right now, you know. And so we, we spout off some like, oh, you're grounded for a year. We're never going to follow through with that, right? Uh, and, and so we end up caving and they, they're grounded for half a day or whatever it is, you know. And, and why? Well, because we blew it. We just sort of overreacted. And so this idea of the Lord even, you know, using the word relented, it kind of still seems to suggest that. That's not the way it is with God. See, God, it's not like he makes a mistake. It's not like, you know, he, he changes his mind. 
No, what's happening here is God is responding to changed man. See, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it tells us in Hebrews 3.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He responds to when we change our mind. See, because he's holy, he's righteous, he's pure. So God, because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he's pure, he has to relate to us according to his righteousness. So if we make a decision to be sinful and disobedient, God, because he's holy, righteous, and pure, he has to relate to us in one way because he has to judge sin. It's not like it is with so many of our politicians today who selectively decide, I'm going to enforce this law, but I'm not going to enforce this law. Listen, that is not righteous leadership. Righteousness has a measure of integrity that says this is the way it is and this is the way that we're going to do it. We can't just have one rule for some and another rule for others. We have to make a a determination in righteousness that says this is the right thing to do all the time this is the right thing to do. And that's the way that God is. And so when we sin, God will deal with us one way, but when, like David here, repents, then what happens is that repentance and that submission causes God to then relent, and now he relates to us in a different way. Now, from our standpoint of view, we, we, we say that God changed, but really what it is is that David changed, and the heart of the people changed, and so that, this is what's going on here. And so God says to the angel in verse 16, hey, that's enough, restrain your hand. Just, a, just an, an indication of, hey, you know what, the people have moved. And it's really a heart of compassion on God. And the way that it's written in the Hebrew conveys that that's, that's a motivation of God's compassion. He does not want to relate to us. It's like you with your kids. You know, when, when you say, this is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you, you really do mean that because you don't want to discipline your kids. You wanna love your kids. But if they're disobedient, they need to be disciplined. And so this is the heart. This is the idea. <clears throat> and so now at this point, David is unaware of this order that, that God has given, that God has, is relenting because David has repented. And so we go on and we read there in verse 17, it says, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and he said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house brings us to the third point you're taking notes write it down David sacrificed to God David sacrificed to God now as we're going to see David is going to offer a sacrifice as God commands but I want you to take note this is really important here David's sacrifice begins in his heart his sacrifice begins in his heart he says I have sinned I have done wickedly. Let your hand be against me and my father's house. Listen, this is a heart of a shepherd. And it's the heart of our shepherd, Jesus Christ. It's the heart of David, but it's also the heart of the son of David, Jesus Christ, who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who, who, who laid his life down for us, who took our sin upon himself. 
Colossians chapter 2 tells us, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins. You ever take a group photo? Who's the first person you look for? How do I look? Well, apparently, according to Colossians 2.13, you got a little something right there, you know? Your hair's gone a little wonky, you got a really, everybody else looks like a GQ model, and your face is all messed up in the picture. He says, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that, against, that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way. Guess what? Your picture got photoshopped. And now you don't have that wonky look on your face. You don't know that little thing right here. No, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5.21, for he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the heart of God. And it's David's heart here. He says, Lord, they're innocent sheep. Let it be on me. Let me take the punishment. And so Gad came to David in verse 18. <clears throat> and he said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Now this is the Old Testament, okay? So, so a sacrifice is required for sin. Now, David, in his heart, the moment he hears this, you know that his heart is rejoicing. Why? Because he knows at this point, if an altar is going up, if a sacrifice is going to be made, God's forgiveness is coming. And so right now, it's just this huge sigh of relief. Hey, God's ready to forgive. Why? Because David's coming to God with a contrite heart, with a sacrificial heart. And here now, God is making a way for the atonement of David's sin and reconciliation with God through what? Through a sacrifice, through shed blood. Now, it's hugely significant, and take note here, that where this is happening, where this sacrifice is happening, highly symbolic for us. Because Chronicles chapter three tells us that the threshing floor of Arana was Mount Moriah. What's significant about Mount Moriah? This is the hill where Abraham offered, uh, offered Isaac to the Lord. This is the hill where Jesus died for our sins. Highly symbolic. See, the sacrifice that they would make in the Old Testament was to point Israel to Jesus Christ, their coming Messiah. Paul said this to the Galatians. He said, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. See, when you came to offer your sacrifice, the priest didn't check you out. He looked at your sacrifice to see if there was any blemish in your sacrifice. And in the same way, when we come to God, when we say, God, I have blown it, what's the way back? God says, here's the way back. It's through a sacrifice, it was made on Mount Moriah for your sin and for mine, through Jesus Christ. And I, when you come to me by faith in Christ, I'm not going to look at you and your sin. I'm going to look at Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain for you, the blood that was shed for you. And I'm going to see you as holy and pure because I've accepted his sacrifice 
on your behalf. And so David, verse 19, according to the word of Gad, he went up as the Lord had commanded. And now Arana looked and he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And so Arana went out and he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And then Arana said, why is my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now at this point, he's got Arana's complete attention. Why? Because 70,000 people have dropped dead so far. And everybody in Jerusalem and all around is wondering, like, who's next? And all of a sudden, this cat shows up. He's like, hey, man, I'm going to make a sacrifice for the Lord to, like, not kill people anymore. And Arana's like, yes, I'm all, I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. So how does he respond? Well, verse 22 says, and now Arana said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for a burnt sacrifice. How can I help this out, man? I got everything you need, right? I got the land, I got the oxen, I got everything. He goes, here's, here's oxen for the burnt sacrifice and the threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for what? I mean, hack everything up, set it on fire, cook the thing, man. Let's get this thing done with. All these things, O king, Arana has given to the king and Arana said to the king, may the Lord God accept your sacrifice. Verse 24, key to this whole thing. Then David said to Arana, no, but I will surely buy it for you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. This is written in the infinitive absolute. David is saying there is not a chance in Hades that I'm going to let you give this thing to me. No, I'm going to sacrifice for the, I will not offer to the Lord something that I got for free. I'm not going to offer the Lord some sacrifice, which is really no sacrifice at all on my part. It's a convenient happenstance. Oh, well, I got all this stuff. Fine, here, I give it to you. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, just an interesting political current event side note. You know the argument that's going on in Jerusalem about the Temple Mount and, you know, whose land is it and, you know, who, who owns this? We just read right here who owns it. David bought it. The, the, the nation of Israel owns that land. They bought and paid for it right here. And verse 25, David built there an altar to the Lord And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Now, the key phrase here is found in verse 24. And what David is expressing here is foundational to our worship. Hear me on this. What's foundational about this is that David says, look, I'm not gonna offer the Lord that which cost me nothing. There's gonna be an element of painful sacrifice on my part here. That I, that I am going to give this sacrificially because it's my best act of worship to God. 
What, what's being described here is a responsive heart of worship. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. This is the response that David is having. He's saying, I'm responding to you, God, because you are so good. We as New Testament Christians, we respond to the goodness of God by saying, God, I have an appreciation for my forgiveness and for your, your making a way for me to have a relationship with you because I understand it costs me nothing, but it costs you everything. And so that perpetuates within me a heart of response that says, God, I worship you with, with something that's costly. I'm going to make a sacrifice of worship for you. Listen, worshiping God costs us something. It doesn't come from a heart of earning God's love. It comes from the response to his love. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9. He said, you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Cheerfully. Now, Paul's talking here to Christians and he's talking about the, the collection of financial offerings to God. And listen, God has set it up this way from the beginning. We, we talked about this last week. When we look at 2 Samuel in the beginning of chapter 24 and David's decide, decision to take a census, look, there was an appropriate way to take a census and God had established it. It was for the express purpose of every single person in Jerusalem being counted and they were counted <clears throat> by giving a financial offering. And the reason they gave the financial offering was for the work of the, of the ministry. And so God set this up. And, and so what had happened here was that, that, you know, now in the New Testament, Paul is saying to these, these New Testament Christians, hey, I want you guys to decide how you're going to worship the Lord in your financial giving. And it's an important distinction. Now, he says here, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. What breaks my heart is a lot of times Christians will quote this verse in defense of how little they can give to God. Because they say, well, what God's really interested in is, is me giving cheerfully. Sort of. But you miss it if you take it from the position of saying, how comfortable does God want to make me? No, here's the best way to understand this. And there's examples throughout scripture of those who worshiped God financially. Consider Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both came to worship God, the book of Genesis, and they both brought an offering, a sacrificial offering to worship him. Now, Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God, but Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God. And Cain copped an attitude. He's all, he's all like, you know, hurt because like his sacrifice wasn't accepted and so he cops an attitude with God. So God goes in Genesis chapter four, he shows up, he basically calls Cain on it. He's like, what's, what's wrong with you, man? And, and here's what he goes on to say. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Now that phrase, do well, tells us everything about his offering. Because here's what that phrase, do well, means. It means to be good and pleasing, and, it, and, it, and in its definition, it carries within it the idea of being a happy, cheerful giver. 
And what happened was is that Cain brought an offering to God that he wasn't happy or cheerful about giving. And God says, keep it. I don't want it because I don't have your heart. That was the issue there. Now, in contrast to this, there's a story in the New Testament in Luke 21, and I'll just paraphrase it. Jesus is there, and he's standing with his disciples, and this, this, everybody's going up to the temple to give their offering as is prescribed in the law, and this old woman goes up, and she drops in a mite. A mite was 140th of a penny in modern dollars. And Jesus goes, check her out, guys. She just gave more than everybody else. Why? Jesus said, they all gave out of their excess. They all gave, you know, just this amount that was, yeah, you can have that kind of thing. It didn't cost them anything. But this woman, it cost her to give. The example I give in, in regards to, you know, the, our building project and, you know, thinking about the, the gal that broke the alabaster jar and, and poured it out on Jesus in worship. And he said, she gave what she could. It cost her something. That was her dowry, her hopes, her dreams for her wedding. And it cost her something. I just want to ask you about your heart and where your heart is in regards to worship. Are you more like David who says, look, I'm not going to offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. I'm going to sacrifice to worship him. Or not. Um, I don't know who gives what here. My job as a pastor isn't, isn't, to, isn't to track what each of you gives individually. But my job as a pastor is to shepherd you. And if you're, if you're behaving in a way that demonstrates that your heart's in the wrong place, my job is to lovingly correct you. And here's what I know. I know that 20% of this church gives less than $3 a week in worship of God in their tithes and offerings. 20% of this church gives less than $3 a week. Now, for some, that might be the widow's might. But I have a feeling that the majority, if not most, or all of those people that are giving less than $3 a week are spending far greater than that on the most ridiculous things. Listen, it's an indication of where your heart is. You won't stand before me and give an account for how you live your life. You're going to stand before the Lord and give an account of how faithful you've been, a steward of what he's entrusted to you, and how responsive you are in worshiping him. And if me telling you that makes you angry, then you need to take a walk with God.